series of five psalms now that all have the phrase, a miktam of David in them. Uh, so um, 55, 56, 57, 58, no, 56 through 60, and Psalm 16 are the six psalms that have a miktam of David in them. And um, scholars are unsure of the meaning of this word. Luther interpreted it as golden, meaning precious, that these were precious psalms. I don't know what elevates one psalm to preciousness higher than another. Uh, there are others that have suggested that the word sounds like the word for engraved, that these psalms are engraved. Uh, guy I never heard of before, that, but that apparently is the greatest Old Testament scholar of the 19th century, Heinrich Ewald. Have you ever heard of him, Rick? Yeah, I'd never heard his name before. I want to read Heinrich Ewald stuff now. Greatest, uh, greatest Old Testament scholar of the 19th century. He interpreted it as signifying in a plaintive manner, a plaintive manner, in other words, a plea, that a plea was being made. Psalm 16 starts with preserve me. The two we're covering today both start with be merciful to me. The plea in Psalm 58 is a little bit different. It's break their teeth. Uh, so he gets a little <laughs> bit forceful. In, uh, in Psalm 58, I plead, Lord, uh, break their teeth. Uh, Psalm 59, again, is deliver me, and Psalm 60 is restore us. Uh, we will know eventually what that notation means. When we get to heaven, what is that miktem, God? What? We, we didn't know that, and he'll tell us. But I'd encourage you to read them all together. There's something about them that is similar that God had that appellation made on those psalms. Read them together and see if there's something that God impresses on your heart uh, with them. Both of these that we're reading today uh, tell us that they're related to particular circumstances, uh, just as Psalm 51 did. And we'll look at events surrounding these and see how they inform us of what's written in them. So Psalm 51, which situation that it was attached to, this was when Nathan came to David and confronted him on his sin. Uh, and today, we kind of have a couple to choose from in the case of Psalm 56. There's two different occurrences. You know, what it says here, a miktam of David when the Philistines captured him in Gath. There's two circumstances where we know that David is in Gath. First in 1 Samuel 21, and then again in 1 Samuel 27, we're going to look first at 1 Samuel 21, and we're going to read that together. First <coughs> Samuel 21, uh, starting in verse 1, we've referred to this uh, chapter um, many times, and I wanted you to just see kind of what happened uh, beforehand. 1 Samuel 21, verse 1, Now David came to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest. He's fleeing from, uh, from Saul here. And Ahimelech was afraid when he met David, and he said to him, Why are you alone, and no one is with you? So David said to, him, to Ahimelech the priest, the king has ordered me on some business and said to me, do not let anyone know anything about the business on which I send you or what I have commanded you. So David is lying to Ahimelech here. 
and I have directed my young men to such and such a place. Now, therefore, what have you on hand? Give me five loaves of bread in my hand, or whatever can be found. And the priest answered David and said, There's no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread, if the young men have kept, at least kept themselves from women. Then David answered the priest and said to him, Truly women have been kept from us about three days since I came out, and the vessels of the young men are holy, and the bread is in effect common, even though it was consecrated in the vessel this day. So the priest gave him from before the Lord in order to put hot bread in its place on the day when it was taken away. Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord. And his name was Doeg, an Edomite, the chief of the herdsmen who belonged to Saul. And David said to Ahimelech, Is there not here on hand a spear or a sword? For I have brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's business required haste. So the priest said, The sword of Goliath the Philistine, whom you killed, is in the, in the valley of Elah. There it is, wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you will take it, take it, for there is no other except that one here. And David said, There is none like it from before Saul, and went to Achish, the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, Is this not David, the king of the land? Did they not sing to him, sing of him to one another in dances, saying, Saul has slain his thousands, and David his ten thousands? Now David took these words to heart and was very much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them, pretended madness in their hands, and scratched on the doors of the gate, and let his saliva fall down on his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, Look, you see this man is insane. Why have you brought him to me? Have I need of madmen that you have brought this fellow to play the madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? So David goes to Gath, right? And if we look back on the history of David, we'll start in chapter 17. Chapter 17, he kills Goliath, right? This amazing act of faith that David undertakes to go up against Goliath. Everybody else in the whole Israelite army is afraid. Goliath comes out, they hide behind their tents. And he says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that defies the living God? And we have this amazing act of faith on David's part. Chapter 18, Saul hears, and they refer to it here in chapter 21, he hears peeps, and Saul's like, that's right, I have. And David, his tens of thousands, he's like, what, what? Wait a second, I'm the king. I'm the king, and his jealousy is aroused against David. Chapter 19, Saul tells all his servants and Jonathan to kill David. Jonathan talks him out of it momentarily. Jonathan talks to him, and, and, and Saul relents in that and invites Saul back into his house, but he's overcome with jealousy, and he goes right back after him. He has his house watched so that if he shows David flees to Samuel, and Saul's messengers then go to try to find him. First, his messengers prophesy. The Spirit comes on them, and they prophesy. Then Saul himself goes, and he starts prophesying. But it doesn't change Saul's path. He's still after David. Chapter 20, Jonathan again tries to dissuade Saul from harming David. Saul blows up. He says, as long as he's alive, your kingdom won't be established. 
I'm concerned for you, son. I want you to be able to have this position. I want this to work out for you. You'll be king after me. As long as he's alive, that can't happen. Jonathan presses the issue, and we see how concerned Saul is for his son as he takes a spear and tries to throw it through him. Tries to kill his own son. So who is he really concerned for? So now David is officially on the run. And how does he appear to Ahimelech? Alone. No one is with him. I never, until just now while I was reading it, I never thought of how David was lying to Ahimelech. The king sent me on this mission, told me not to tell anybody, and my young men are going to meet me elsewhere. I'm, we're, you know, this is why I'm alone, because Ahimelech asked him why. David is alone. He has no soldiers, no weapons, no food, and he leaves there alone with whatever's left of the five loaves that Ahimelech gave him and the sword of Goliath. And he shows up in Gath. With the, you know who's from Gath? Goliath. Maybe not the best uh, reasoning there, you know. I'm going to bring this sword to this place. So he goes there. So now if we look at chapter 27, we're not going to read the whole chapter. We're going to read the first seven verses. <coughs> chapter 27. David now has uh, followers uh, with him. Uh, he's no longer alone here. In chapter 27, verse 1, it says, And David said in his heart, Now I shall perish someday by the hand of Saul. There's nothing better for me than that I should speedily escape to the land of the Philistines, and Saul will despair of me to seek me any more in any part of Israel. So I shall escape out of his hand. Then David arose and went over with the king of Gath. He goes right back to this same place. So David dwelt with Achish at Gath. Welcome is a little bit different this time. David's got a little muscle with him. Dwelt with Achish at Gath, he and his men, each man with his household, and David with his two wives, Ahinoam the Jezreelitist, and Abigail the Carmelitist, Nabal's widow. And it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, so he sought him no more. Then David said to Achish, If I have now found favor in your eyes, let me let them give me a place in some town in the country that I may dwell there. For why should your servant dwell in the royal city with you? So Achish gave him Ziklag that day. Therefore Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. Now the time that David dwelt in the country of the Philistines was one full year and four months. So what's the same in David's fleeing to Gath? Same both time, he's afraid for his life. He's running from Saul. First time running from Saul, Saul's going to kill me. I got to get out of here. Second time, he's got a band of followers. He's got soldiers, but he's still afraid, and he runs to Gath. What's different? He's no longer alone. He arrives with the 600 men. He's got two wives. He actually had at least three wives by that time because Saul's daughter, Michal, had been given to him in marriage, and that story, he gets her back later, but not a pleasant relationship that they have. 
And now he's found favor in the eyes of Achish because Achish grants him his request. And he, he has endeared, he ends up endearing himself so much that Achish wants to bring him in battle against Saul that year and four months later after he's living there. But the rest of the Philistine kings won't allow it. So of these two scenarios, it seems pretty clear to me that this initial fleeing into Gath is what occasioned Psalm 56. So Psalm 56, let's go ahead and read that. To the chief musician of David when the Philistines captured him in Gath. Be merciful to me, O God, for man would swallow me up. Fighting all day, he oppresses me. My enemies would hound me all day, for there are many who fight against me, O Most High. Whenever I am afraid, I will trust in you. In God, I will praise his word. In God, I have put my trust. I will not fear. What can flesh do to me? All day they twist my words. All their thoughts are against me for evil. They gather together. They hide. They mark my steps. When they lie in, in anger, cast down the peoples, O God. You number my wanderings. Put my tears into your bottle. Are they not in your book? When I cry out to you, then my enemies will turn back. This I know because God is for me. In God, I will praise his word. In the Lord, I will praise his word. In God, I have put my trust. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Vows made to you are binding upon me, O God. I will render praises to you. For you have delivered my soul from death. Have you not kept my feet from falling, that I may walk before God in the light of the living? Let's uh, pray as we, before we continue here. So God, we are so thankful for your word. And we're so thankful that you enlighten us by it. That you give us words to live by. What does David say here? I will praise his word. I will praise his word. Help us to praise your word, God, to elevate it to the place it needs to be in our lives. Open our eyes here as we continue to study this morning. Put in our hearts the things that need to be put there. And whatever is keeping your word out, saying right now, would you help each of us to say, Lord, I give you my heart. I am open to what you have to say to me. Help us to hear what you have for us, God. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> so he's got enemies in Saul, and he's got enemies in Gath, right? Saul is chasing him. David's afraid for his life. He's fled he knows Saul is determined to kill him. He gets to Gath, and he hears the whisperings. Don't you know, Achish, this is the guy that Goliath. He's got the sword with him. You're going to welcome him here? And David becomes afraid, greatly afraid. So he starts acting crazy. And Achish says, you know, don't we have enough of those guys here already? Do we need to import them? All right, do we need more madmen? So he talks about his enemies ready to swallow him up. 
hounding him, oppressing him, fighting against him, twisting his words, thinking evil against him. He says they're gathered together. Here he is. Here's David. He's completely alone. And his enemies are ganging up on him. You ever feel that way? Everybody else is looking at you, wondering what is wrong with you. Everyone's against you. They must be thinking the worst of you. They must have loads of critical thoughts in their minds. We, uh, we think people are thinking more of us than they are. And I'm, they're just not thinking about us. They, like us, are thinking about themselves. Um, but we get that feeling at times that everybody is lined up here. They're gathered together against him. They hide. They mark his steps. They're examining his actions, criticizing his every move. They lay in wait for his life. That's a tough place to be, to be feeling, to be feeling any one of those things is a tough place to be. He's feeling all of them right now. And he's run away outside of the land that God had promised. He's gone to Gath. He's gone to seek shelter outside of where God says, this is the land that I'm giving you. So there's two things about, about this, right? About enemies. First, don't be these ways toward anyone. Don't be these ways toward anyone. Don't be ready to swallow anyone up. Don't hound people. Don't oppress them. Don't fight against them. Don't twist their words. Don't think evil against them. What does it say in verse 7? It's iniquity. Shall they escape by iniquity? It's iniquity to do these things. It won't get you anywhere. There's no escape provided in iniquity. Sometimes we get in, in these moods about people, and it gives us something to think these ways and feel these ways and act these ways against them. We, get, we feel a little bit better about ourselves in that situation. God says that's iniquity, and there is no real escape provided by that. And David, if we think about this theme of escape, what is he trying to do? He's trying to escape. God's saying, choose your ways of escape. Choose the place that you come to. No escape provided in iniquity. It says, in anger, cast down the peoples, O God. You'll be cast down if you're treating people in that way. It is not going to help you. I don't mean you're going to lose your salvation. I mean, it is only going to bring you to a lower level to go there. So first thing, don't be like that towards anyone. Second, we're shown where to go, and it's not to Gath. If you've got signs pointing this way to Gath, this way to God, go this way. Right? Wherever you would go otherwise, go the way that it says is the direction to God. We're not to go to Gath. We're not to blend. It may be, feel safer there, but it's not. 
Where do you free, where do you flee when you feel afraid? Where's the natural place that you go when you feel afraid? Right? It's probably not a physical destination, but you know where you go in your heart. You know where you go in your mind when you feel afraid. When it's not God, what are your likely destinations to be? Complaining, worry, anger, depression, food, sex, work, trying to control things. What's your likely destination? Where are you apt to go? David was apt to go to Gath. That's his likely destination. We have likely destinations. We should be aware of them and recognize those are not God. Those are not the place for us. Those are not the direction to go, and there's, there's not going to be any benefit there for us. But we go there time and time again. David had his patterns. Pushed hard enough, he's headed to Gath. I'm going to Gath. We have our path. If you're brave enough, ask one another, what do I start doing when I get afraid? How do I act? What sin starts pouring out of me? Uh, and be gentle with one another. <laughs> agree to be brave together and agree to be gentle together. But ask your spouse, when I start getting afraid, where do I go? Where's my likely destination? How do I start behaving in that? If you're uh, married and feel like this situation would go sideways quick, uh, get some help in your relationship from people you trust, right? There's, there's uh, people that I would say, I don't think you should have that conversation yet. Let's work on some other stuff first. God's calling you to a destination. He's calling you to oneness, so I think we should all be shooting to get there and further, right, than just being able to ask, how do I, how do I sin when I start to get afraid? And being willing to hear it. If you don't have anyone you trust, start praying about that and growing in that. If you're not married, ask friends that you're close to. Where do you go when you start to be afraid? What's your likely destination? What starts to come out of you? In that case, lying. That's what David did, right? Off I go, so now I start lying. Is we have, um, sometimes we have this picture of David that he was great until Bathsheba, and he was great. As a, as a man, he was great, but he wasn't perfect anywhere along the road. It wasn't like David suddenly sinned with Bathsheba and had been completely pure before that. He was a man just like us. He was flesh just like us. So where do we go? Where should we go? We go to God. Verse 1, be merciful to me, God. Be merciful to me. When I end up acting crazy with saliva dripping down my beard, which is gross. I want to picture that. Uh, my beard gets long enough, you know, food is enough, much less saliva. Whenever I'm afraid, verse 3, I will trust in you. 
that's a great destination to go to. I'm afraid I want to do this. I want to go to my normal place, but I'm going to choose to trust in God instead. In God, I will praise his word. What was had said to David by this time? You will be king. He had anointed him, and he would be king. He hasn't become king yet, and he remembers this, and he puts his trust in God. He realizes that flesh can do nothing to him. At least until that point, right? He could have hung his hat on that. Nobody's going to kill me until I at least become king. Maybe after. And then God gives him more promises after that, and we see this understanding of the eternal life that God was going to give him that we end up getting in even a greater measure. But he had a promise, he had a word from God, directly from God through Samuel, you will be king. There was no reason for David to run away from anything. And there's times in his life that he understood that, and there's times in his life when he didn't. And there's times in our lives when we understand things And there's times in our lives when we don't. And we need to grow more and more in our understanding and our grasping of what is true. Man can do nothing to him. We don't trust others because we're afraid of what they can do to us. Right? I love this scripture. I will not fear what can flesh do to me. Because... We think of all sorts of ways that people can harm us. And that's what gets it. We lie because of that, right? He comes to Ahimelech, why are you here? Why are you alone? Now he's afraid of what Ahimelech can do to him. Or afraid that he won't get whatever he's supposed to get from Ahimelech. So he starts lying, right? We become afraid of what others can do to us. Trusting God will help us to have closer, healthier relationships with others because I come to them and express sin or I come to them and uh, ask their opinion about something or I'm honest with them about something. They can't really do anything to us. We can be hurt in the short term, but they don't have any power over us. So many people are afraid to talk to, um, you know, I don't, I don't want to talk to the pastor because he might take something away from me. He might do something to me. He might take a responsibility or he might look at me differently. We don't have any power to do anything to you guys. We don't have any power to take anything away, and the one you trust is the one that's given you everything that you have. It didn't come from me. It didn't come from anybody else. So after more wanderings and chasings, Jonathan comes to David in, uh, in chapter 23, and he says this to him in verses 16 and 17. 1 Samuel 23, 16 and Then Jonathan, Saul's son, arose and went to David in the woods and strengthened his hand and said to him, Do not fear, 
for the hand of Saul, my father, shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. We wish that that would have happened. That didn't happen. Even my father Saul knows that. So the part of what Jonathan said was true was that you will be king over Israel. How does he strengthen him? By reminding him of what the word of God says. He comes and finds him, and he tells him the word of God. We can say uh, we should be kind to one another in our counsel. We should weep with those who weep. At the end of the day, all of us need the word of God. All of us need to hear it because it's better, it's higher than anything else that we can give to one another. And we shouldn't get mad at people when they bring it to us. Now, some people, you know, want to use it like a hammer to control people. That's different. If that's you, that's iniquity. There's no escape in that. That's not going to be useful to you. It's not a hammer. It's a standard to be called to. And it's a standard that God says he will help us to come to and accede to. So he goes to David and reminds him of what's true. So just but what does Saul act like? He acts like it's not true. He acts like the word of God is not true. And we do that too. We ignore things. Well, that's not I don't want to think about that because it is in opposition to what I want to do. Or Saul acts like it's not true. David is struggling with believing it. And that's the one we tend to more, right? We don't, we don't outrightly say, this isn't true, God didn't say that, I'm not doing it. Sometimes we do. We tend more towards just struggling with believing what God has said is true. Just like our brother David struggled with believing what God said was true. And he goes back and forth in this thing. We do both of these things, and we would save ourselves grief upon grief by holding to God's word above everything else. Verse 8, who recognizes David's predicament? God, you number my wanderings. God numbers our wanderings. He's aware. And he's not numbering them like when he gets to 10, the lightning bolts begin. Right? Ten wanderings, that's all you get, and then you're out. You're done. Not numbering them like that, losing patience as he gets higher and higher in the numbers. He's numbering them in concern. He's numbering them in patience. He's recording it all, capturing our tears. Every tear you've, you've cried, God's aware of those those that were in grief, those that were in anger, those that were in disbelief, those that were in depression, those that were in loss. David says, capture my tears. You record my wanderings. Put them in your book. You know all about me, God. He knows all about you. And he cares so deeply for you. He knows that our wanderings are precious to him. And our hurts are precious to him. He doesn't think you're being a baby. He cares deeply for you. 
Verse 9, because God is for us, our enemies, our true enemies, are turned back. When we get to Psalm 57, verse 3, it says, He reproaches the one who would swallow me up. God reproaches the one who would swallow us up. When we feel overwhelmed, like life is just going to come over us and toss us wherever it wants to, God reproaches the enemy. He says, no, you're not doing that to, to my child. You're not doing that to him. Verse 10, David grows in his conviction. It's God's word. It's the Lord's word. And in verse 11, he reiterates this understanding that he spoke in verse 4. In God, I have put my trust. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? What am I doing here in Gath? What am I doing in this place that's not God? Why am I here? In God, I have put my trust. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Vows to you. uh, So sometimes I like to pull out the italicized words. Uh, because I love the way it sounds without them. So in the New King James, the italicized words are are added for clarity. Uh, So it says in verse 12, vows made to you are binding upon me. And if you take out the italicized words, it's vows to you upon me, O God. Not a burden, but something that I relish, something that I want. And what what are the vows praises to you not responsibility but praises rendered to him are a privilege should i elaborate on praises you guys know i love talking about praises no we won't go there today we've already been there you know it praise why does god deliver our soul from death and keep our feet from falling verse 13 Why does God deliver our soul from death and keep our feet from falling? That we might walk before him in a life marked by his presence and for his pleasure. Not to run off in self-protection. Not to spend our time on ourselves, but in him and for him and through him. David fled back and came to truth. He lost it. He got it back again, just like us. We get very down when we don't know what to do or, or we feel we can't accomplish what we should, what we know we should do, right? You ever get down on yourself in that situation? God, I don't know what to do. And, and we feel like if we don't know what to do, that God has, has like left the theater, right? Now I'm all alone on this stage of life and I don't know what to do, God, and you're nowhere. I don't know what to do. Or we feel like we can't accomplish what God has called us to. We're not up to it. We don't have the strength to do it. And I would suggest to you, rather than that being a place where you feel like you're alone and it's a bad place, that it's a fantastic place to be. It's a good place to be because then we know whatever is done is clearly done through him. Turn to Second Corinthians chapter four. You can leave your finger in First Samuel because we'll be back there. But Second Corinthians chapter four.
verse 7 tells us, We have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. We're earthen vessels. Not knowing what to do, it's okay. Not feeling like you can do is okay because the power, if we knew all the time and we could do it on our own, then we'd always be off after our own power. We'd always be relying on our own selves. But we are in these earthen vessels, these jars of clay, these tents, as they get described in different places, and we don't know what to do. And we carry this treasure in it so that we would know it's from God. So we would know it's from not from ourselves. So when we don't have the ability, we go, God, what do you want to do with me? God, I don't, I don't think I can do this, but I know that you say I can. And we get the opportunity to experience his power rather than our limits. We get so used to our limits, and sometimes we make our limit really small, and sometimes we make our limit really big and go beyond stuff we should do. But not knowing what we should do gives us an opportunity for God's power to come through, and I'd rather see his power in my life than anything else. So, Lord, The title uh, here tells us this is regarding a time when David fled from Saul into the cave. A couple of choices we have here as well. Uh, David uh, gets deported from Gath. And in 1 Samuel 22, right, the madman uh, and all his droolings leave Gath. And then at the beginning of uh, chapter 22... It says, David therefore departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. So when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress, everyone who was in debt, everyone who was discontented gathered to him. So he became captain. So he gets deported from Gath and suddenly he gets a group around him. So he's no longer alone. But he gets 400 men, I'm sure with some families, uh, that are distressed, in debt, discontented, also described as bitter of soul. Well, you got a group now, David. Here you go. Sounds like a fun group to be with, right? Sounds like the church. Uh, you know, there's, we're the perfect dysfunctional family, right? And it's okay. It's good. But David's got these men around him. And then in chapter 24... We find David in another cave. Starting in verse 1 of chapter 24. Now it happened when Saul had returned from following the Philistines that it was told him, saying, Take note, David is in the wilderness of Engedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men from all Israel and went to seek David and his men on the rocks of the wild goats. So he came to the sheepfolds by the road where there was a cave, and Saul went in to attend to his needs. David and his men were staying in the recesses of the cave, which the Lord said to you, 
Behold, I will deliver your enemy into your hand, that you may do to him as it seems good to you. And David arose and secretly cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Now it happened afterward that David's heart was troubled because he had cut Saul's robe. And he said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, to stretch out my hand against him, seeing he is the anointed of the Lord. So David restrained his servants with these words and did not allow them to rise against Saul. And Saul got up from the cave and went on his way. So again, I think either of these could apply, but the chapter 24 seems the more likely one to me since he's fleeing from Gath going into chapter 2. And at the, so he's not fleeing from Saul going into chapter 2, but at the end of chapter 3, there's this very tense scene, chase scene of him fleeing from Saul. He's going down one side of a mountain. Saul's on the other side. They're very close. They actually, they're so close in proximity that at the beginning of chapter 24, they're in the same cave. This is what a close call this is for David with Saul chasing him. So I think it's more likely that it's this scene in chapter 24, this cave, that David ends up in. So let's read Psalm 57. To the chief musician set to do not destroy, a mictim of David when he fled from Saul into the cave. Be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me, for my soul trusts in you, and in the shadow of your wings I will make my refuge until these calamities have passed by. I will cry out to God most high, to God who performs all things for me. He shall send from heaven and save me. He reproaches the one who would swallow me up. Selah. God shall send forth his mercy and his truth. My soul is among lions. I lie among the sons of men who are set on fire, whose teeth are spears and arrows and their tongue a sharp sword. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be above all the earth. They prepared a net for my steps. My soul is bowed down. They have dug a pit before me. Into the midst of it they themselves have fallen. Selah. My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. I will sing and give praise. Awake, my glory. Awake, lute and harp. I will awaken the dawn. I will praise you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing to you among the nations. For your mercy reaches unto the heavens and your truth into the clou- unto the clouds. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be above all the earth. So David gets into the truth much more quickly in this psalm. And I think the situation shows us where his mind is. Be merciful to me, for my soul trusts in you. I'm not going off to the place I shouldn't be. I'm immediately coming to you, God. I'm bringing these things immediately to you. In the shadow of your wings, I will make my refuge until these calamities have passed by. I'm not going to Gath. I'm not going to Gath. I'm afraid, but I'm not going to Gath. I'm staying in the shadow of your wings. Eventually, he reaches a place where he does go back, but right now, in this situation, he is settled on God's word, his promise, and his presence, and it's a tremendous witness to us to be able, in the midst of, I love the word, 
calamities. Calamities. Got some calamities in your life? Some calamitous situations? In the I I will stay here until these calamities have passed. We don't see calamities as passing by. We see them as paying, not paying rent, squatting, right? They come to our house, they come to our minds, they take up refuge. It's a disaster, right, our calamities. In the shadow of your wings until these have passed by. David had promises to look forward to, and we have promises to look forward to. And there's a way that we need to see our calamity. God has delivered Saul to him. I'll use quotation marks around delivered. God has delivered Saul to him, and his guys are telling him, kill him. Kill him. This is the day which the Lord said to you, behold, I will deliver your enemy into your hand that you may do to him as seems good to you. But we don't have any record of God saying that to David. His guys are telling him, this is your chance. This is your chance. And David's going, I don't think that's right. And And we have multiple records of David's very strong conviction that he shouldn't raise his hand against God's anointed. Even in this case, he cuts his robe and he's conscience-stricken about doing that. He knows that this is not of God. And I think verse 4 is about his own guise. My soul is among lions. I lie among the sons of men who are set on fire, whose teeth are spears and arrows, and their tongue a sharp sword. If people are not bringing you the word of God or they're distorting it a little bit, A little bit often makes it all wrong. A little twist makes it all wrong. And he's got the discontented, indebted, uh, and distressed with him. And when we're like that, what's the quick fix? This must be from God. He's given me this avenue. But I don't think I should take it because of this other thing. But it must be. we got to be careful. Who are we listening to? Who are we listening to? I've been thinking a lot about voices lately, and so I did not, I chose one song in the set, and we haven't even sung it yet. Well, two, because Be Exalted, I chose. Multiple songs today talked about voice. Every other voice is still. Every heart leans in until you speak. I didn't choose that. I'm talking about voices. And I've been thinking a lot about voices lately. Who am I listening to? Who am I entertaining in my thought life? What is loudest? What tends to hold my attention together? It's the voice of God that keeps him from killing Saul. Twice here in Psalm 57, verse 5 and verse 11, he writes, Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be above all the earth. If his voice is above the heavens, it's above everything. If his glory is above all the earth, it's beyond anything that I could want. Anything else that I could want 
His glory is above it. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be above all the earth, especially in my mind, especially in my heart. What voice dominates your mind? What voice dominates your mind about how God regards you? About your sin? About your spouse? About your purpose? About whatever situation you find yourself embroiled in? What voice dominates your mind? Is it the voice of God? Is it Him exalted? Or is it your own desire? Exalted. I've seen very clearly recently that I have allowed them to be louder than God's, and I thought I was at their mercy, and I'm not, and you're not. You are not at the mercy of other voices. We get to choose whose voice will be louder. I've been blessed tremendously by choosing to ask, what do you say about this? God. Little conversation with God, right in the middle of whatever. This is what's blaring at 11 in my head. What are you saying? Instead of what I'm thinking about this, instead of what's loud about this. And allowing his voice to blow everything else away. Choosing to say, this is the voice I'm going to listen to. Uh, 2 Corinthians 10, verses 3 through 5, says this. For though we walk in the flesh, again, treasures in earthen jars, though we walk in the flesh, we do not war. Go ahead, turn there. Let's do it. We got time. Turn there and let's read it together. If we're going to listen to his voice. We might as well read his voice too. And starting in verse three. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. We walk in the flesh, each and every one of us. None of us are a foot above the ground. We all walk in the flesh. And we have the ability, we have weapons to pull down strongholds. And I have found in my life that some strongholds and arguments have continued to exist because I let their voice remain strong and allow the knowledge of God to be weak. Bring them to Jesus, let him hold them, and let him bring them to obedience. Be exalted, O God, let your glory be above all the earth. 
So I want to finish quickly today in John chapter 10 because Jesus talks about voices in this passage, and maybe someone can go get uh, Joel and Becky and the girls from and, uh, yeah the girls from the classroom because we're going to have communion and do a song here at the end. John chapter 10, verses 1 through 5. I don't know if Joe went to get them or if somebody else is going to get them. <coughs> Thank you, Rick. Well, Many people going there. John chapter 10. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs up some other way, the same as a thief and a robber, but he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice. And he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And when he brings out his own sheep, he goes before them. And the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. Yet they will by no means follow a stranger, but will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. And I look at that and I go, uh, what are you talking about, Jesus? I feel like I follow other voices all the time. I feel like I traipse after other voices all the time. <clears throat> and what it says here, and this is a perfect example of who needs to win when my feelings come up against the voice of God, right? I feel like I follow other voices all the time. Jesus says... My sheep will not follow another's voice. So I can't be following. It can't be exactly what I think. I hear other voices. And, you know, someone may isolate the video and say, see, this is what Christians do. They're nuts. They hear voices. If you go down to verse 19 of John 10, the crowd was divided. And half of them said, he's a madman. He's crazy. We need to stop being afraid of people thinking we're crazy. We need to embrace the crazy because half of them are going to think of it and probably half of them already do. But Jesus says, if I am his sheep, I will not follow other voices. And this is what I think happens. Satan is a thief and a robber, and he climbs into the gate through another way. He knows we won't recognize his voice and follow him, so he enters through our desires, which we are no stranger to. Our own voices, our own desires, we're no stranger to. And we then think, these are, we listen to those voices. And he sets those up against the word of God, against the love of God, and against the will of God. Are all our desires evil? Are they all set against the will of God? No, but what do you think? of this what do you think of this god who are you listening to what does the cross shout out to you what is taking communion and proclaiming the death of jesus until he returns says we're going to have uh, we're going to do a song here that the elements will be passed out and we'll hold them and we'll take them together and this song has the words of jesus in it that joel said earlier peace 
be still. Peace, be still.